Good morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and just leave your ribbon or your finger or a marker of some sort there. A bit bit of a heavy subject today, heavy topic, Um, one that I've wrestled with for a couple of weeks and just so that you've got some idea of where we're going to go with this, um, I don't have one point with seven sub-points. Um, four, four things that I want to orient your thinking around today. Um, first one is, I want you to see the obvious sin in this passage. And then I want you to see the sin that sits below that. Then I want you to see the severity of sin unchecked, left to run wild. But then the last thing I want us to be able to do this morning is to see grace in difficult places. Okay? So they're the four things that I want to orient our thinking around this morning. We want to see the sin that's on the surface. We want to see the sin that sits below. We want to see the severity of our sin unchecked. But most importantly, we want to see grace in difficult places. Believe it or not, and for those closest to me, it is no stretch of the imagination, but I was well acquainted with the discipline of my parents. I was very familiar with the um, various disciplinary techniques of the late 70s through to the late 90s. Not only did I uh, feel the discipline, I experienced the discipline as I longingly gazed up into the rafters of the uh, high set home where Dad had chained my BMX for two weeks. I don't recall what I'd done on that occasion to receive this discipline. Could have been any of at least a dozen things without thinking even very difficultly about it. But I do recall thinking that I would have rather faced the cane, which I did on numerous occasions at school, just to get the pain over and done with and move on. And of course, discipline, as we think about it in the home at least, discipline has changed over the years since then, or at least the types of discipline that are accepted by our society or culture have changed, but one thing has never changed about good discipline, and that is that good discipline has always been implemented as a way of correcting or reinforcing healthy attitudes and behaviours. Because I can say with complete honesty that I do not recall ever experiencing discipline given in anger by my parents. And for that I'm very grateful for because I know some people here have not experienced that. 
And I will happily go on record in saying that while at the time I hated the discipline with every stinging fibre of my body, I'm deeply grateful for my parents' resolve to shape the headstrong, willful, self-centred boy that I was. Because I know that I was a very difficult child. And yet I'm very far from complete, but I also know that I am a better man today for the discipline that I received from a family that loved me. And that's what we're going to be talking a bit about today. Discipline. Not discipline in the home, but discipline in the church. And so I desperately need you to pray for me as we read God's Word and reflect on what it is saying. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you do speak to us. I thank you that you are a Father who loves us. And even as your Word says, a Father that disciplines us because you love us. And all of us in this room have various experiences of discipline in our human experience. Some of them are good, some of them are very painful. Some of them weren't discipline at all, but abuse. And so, Lord, I pray that your words will speak through the, the mist of our own thinking and our own experiences, and that, Holy Spirit, you will take the word of God, cut us in the places that need to be cut into, pare away, build up, soothe, do all the things that only you can do for us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, hopefully you've still got 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter, it's only 13 verses, and we're hopefully going to cover most of it to some degree today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting from verse 1, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new, unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters 
Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, or an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. I told you there's some tough stuff in that chapter. Some heavy stuff in that chapter. Here's the first thing that I want us to orient our thinking around. I said it was going to be seeing the obvious sin. So let's just get this unpleasantness out of the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul lets the church know that there has been a report that's come to him. And this report is deeply disturbing and it's about sexual immorality, about sexual conduct that's happened within the church. Among you, he says, a behaviour that isn't even acceptable by those outside the church, those who don't know God, the Gentiles, he says. And in specifically, he says that there is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, first and foremost, that is meant to shock us. It should shock us. If it doesn't, if we shrug our shoulders at that, there's, there's some deep searching that we need to do within our own hearts. And we don't want to in any way minimise or excuse the type of behaviour that was happening within the life of the church there. But just so we're clear in what this does mean, I just want to sort of try and clarify or be clear on what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that there was a man who was sleeping with his mother. All right? I think Paul would have named that directly rather than in a roundabout way where he says his father's wife. I think what was happening here was that a certain man in the church had entered into a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Probable that the man's father had remarried for some reason. It's quite plausible that his new wife was considerably younger than he was. That's um, fairly common within that culture and with that era. And somehow... An affair had begun between the new wife and her stepson. Now, I want you to notice that Paul begins by saying that sexual immorality was being reported as happening within the church. And then secondly, he goes on to define what that kind of sexual immorality was... And thirdly, he states the severity of it by saying that this type of behaviour isn't even tolerated by the Gentiles, by those outside of the church who don't define their behaviour by any type of divine moral code. He says even the people outside the church, they don't tolerate this type of behaviour. I also don't want you to miss the opening words of that sentence where he says, it is actually reported which means that this behaviour isn't a secret. 
In fact, as bad as the immorality is, the fact that it was public knowledge and unlike the Gentiles, it was tolerated to the point of almost being celebrated forms the backdrop of what I think Paul is really going to drive at here. Okay, there was sin on the surface in this church. And it was plain and it was obvious for all to see. But there was more sin. There was other sin lurking below. Sin that I think would have devastating consequences if it was left unchecked. So that was the sin that was sitting on the surface. It should shock us. It's not pleasant. It's not something that in general conversation we would all sort of talk about. But Paul names it and then he drives to say, what's the sin that sits below? Well, what was it? I think it was some type of um, culture of maybe progressive celebration. A warped view, maybe, that the Corinthians had of their freedom in Christ. Or maybe of their position of redemption being so secure that they could just live a a lifestyle of license. I'm going to live any way I like, any behaviour I like. And in fact, we're going to not only tolerate it, but celebrate it. It seems that the church not only knew about the sin, but it was public knowledge to the point that it was being reported behaviour to people outside the church. And taken even further, this sexually immoral relationship was somehow forming an arrogance in the church. Do you see that in verse 2? In verse 2 he says, you are arrogant. Which led me to a long time of trying to wrestle with how on earth could a church develop a sense of arrogance? What does it mean for a church to be arrogant when talking about this type of behaviour that's going on inside the church? How could that sin also lead the church to become arrogant? Now, the only way that I could try to understand or try and make sense of that Why why did Paul describe the church as being arrogant? Is to try and marry that statement up with a statement that Paul makes about the church a little further down in verse 6. I want you to go down and find it. Verse 6, Paul makes a statement about the fact that your boasting is not good. Now, the idea of boasting kind of goes hand in hand with the term arrogance. So, those who are arrogant boast. And arrogance is a way that I think about myself. Boasting is the action that flows from that. So the way that I try and make sense about the arrogance here, about the response of the church, and this is almost too much for our heads to to sort of wrap itself around, is that somehow the behaviour of the church, this immorality that was occurring within the church, that was public knowledge, not only was it tolerated... But in fact, the church was somehow boasting about it, like it was a good thing, like it was some sense of an idea of their Christian freedom, some sort of warped understanding of what it means to be free in Christ, a license to live however I like, that grace covers everything so much that it doesn't matter, that there are no consequences, that I can do what I want, and well, God's there for me, isn't he? That's what Jesus is there for, to forgive me. 
The arrogance the Corinthians had was the arrogance of Christian liberty. And as difficult as it is to imagine, the church was actually boasting in their Christian freedom to the extent that they were proud of the fact that a father and a son were having this type of relationship with the same woman. And as bad as that behavior was, in Paul's mind, it was, it was this sin below the surface that concerned him deeply as well. You see, it's true that sinful behaviors spring from a sinful heart. If our hearts and our minds are twisted with distorted images of who God is, who we are and how we should relate to a holy God, well then from that seedbed springs all sorts of thistles, all sorts of weeds that will choke out the good fruit of the Spirit as we walk as disciples of Jesus. And so we've seen the sin that's on the surface, it shocks us, and then there's a sin that sits below that in the church, and it was the sin of celebrating a distorted sense of Christian liberty to the point that we could boast in our sin. And then I want you to see the severity of sin unchecked. That's the third thing that we want to orient our thinking around. You see, I think that there's a great sadness that exists in the church of today. And it's in a world that is moulded and, and shaped by the ideals of tolerance and inclusion, which are both very good things and very important things in our world. But somehow we can become distorted in our thinking of that. And many people, many Christians even, are more shocked by what Paul says we should do about the sin than they are of the sin, them, sin itself. So they read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and they say there's sexual immorality rampant in the church, even of a kind not tolerated by the Gentiles, and they go, oh, that's terrible. And then Paul says, remove that man from your congregation. And they just go, you can't do that. How dare you, Paul, right? That's harsh. That's exclusive. That's intolerant. And we become shocked more shocked by what Paul says we should do about the sin than the sin itself. We have an under-realized view of the severity of our own sin. It's how we cope with it in life. We all struggle with sin, whatever it may be. Those of you who are being made new in Jesus, you are new creations. We understand the tension that exists there. I'm a new creation. Old things are gone. Yet we also hear Paul as he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And we understand that tension on a daily basis and one of the ways that we can learn to live with that is to minimise the sense of severity of our own sin. It's not that big a deal. That's what Jesus' forgiveness is for after all, isn't it? We must see the severity of our sin. 
So I want to read again just a few verses from this. Here's what Paul says about it, and then I'd like just to make a few observations about it. So read from verse 2. We're going to read down to verse 5. Paul says, And you are arrogant. You are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? He's talking to the whole church here. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? And that's the bit that we, we so often sort of take a deep breath at and we think, this is getting uncomfortable. This is getting really challenging now. Verse 3, even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present, I'm present in the spirit. Paul's saying to them, listen guys, I'm not with you in person, but I am with you in spirit. I'm joined to you. I love you guys. This is a church that he's very dear and precious to Paul. So he says, as one who is present with you in this way, Paul says, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. And then he says to them, when you are assembled, when you get together in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's important, not get together in vindictiveness, not get together in anger, Not get together in the name of punishment. We're going to get to that in a moment. He says, when you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, he says, I'm with you in spirit and in the power of the Lord Jesus. This is not not us. Verse 5, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I'm going to deal with that statement in a moment. It's, it's pretty confronting. A little further down, Paul goes on to explain what he means by not associating with sexually immoral people. He's making this statement. Hey, don't, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And he wants to clarify what he means down in verse 9, where he says, listen, I, I did write you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people... But verse 10, he clarifies it by saying, I didn't mean the immoral people of this world, right? Greedy, swindlers, idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. If we not associate with anyone like that, we have to just go and find ourselves a little commune somewhere. We have to build a building with no windows, no walls, apart from, or lots of walls, no windows, one tiny door. Let's go in there, pretend that the world doesn't exist. Let's not associate with people in business. Let's not associate with people socially. We'll just become a commune of some sort. Paul says, no. That's dumb. Can't do that. He does say, though, I I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. The context there is in Christ and is sexually immoral or greedy, and then the list continues, or is an idolater, or verbally abusive, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. So let's just state the obvious. Paul is telling the church in Corinth that they should kick the guy doing this out of the congregation. There's not another way that we can interpret this, really, to sort of try and make it fit 
our context in this world. Paul is actually just saying, listen, this guy, he needs to be removed from the congregation. Now, to make sure that you understand what Paul is saying here, I think we can see his theology of the church very clearly. So Paul is saying much more then don't let this guy keep coming to church on a Sunday morning. I mean, what was, what was the church in Corinth going to do? Start posting bouncers at the front door? Yeah, you're in. Yeah, you're in. Turn around, mate. Off you go. Off you. No, you're not in. That's not what Paul's talking about here. In fact, he's actually saying a lot more than that. He says, don't, don't even eat with that guy. This is not so much about a theology of the church which is contained to the couple of hours that a church gathers. He says, don't treat this guy like he's part of the church. So yes, that means that he wouldn't be welcome at church gatherings but it also means that he wasn't welcome to share a meal with other believers. To engage with them as they, though they were his brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, we are talking about severe discipline here. This is hard stuff. And to be honest, for most of our modern world, it seems way over the top. I've even heard it described as being unchristlike to do this. But here's the problem with thinking that, that, that somehow Jesus wouldn't be very happy with Paul's instructions here. The problem is Jesus told us to do it like this. Jesus did. Mind you, when he did, what Paul is describing here is the very last step of a long process of restoration that Jesus wanted us to engage with. It's the last drastic step that should be taken and only after a series of other redemptive efforts have already been tried, rejected and ignored. You can, if you'd like, turn to Matthew chapter 18. I'll read it out for you. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples and he says this, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's step number one in discipline. There's a problem that exists between two people in the church. Jesus' instruction, go talk to them about it. That's where all good restorative relationship begins. Go and have a conversation. If Jesus had lived his earthly ministry out in 2022, he would have said, I am absolutely certain of it, don't post something on Facebook about that. That's garbage, guys. There has been more rifts and broken relationships because of the abuse of our social media habits than anything else. Go and have a personal conversation, face to face. Listen, friend, what you said, what you did, it was hurtful to me. 
I was hurt by it. Have a one-on-one conversation. Jesus says, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, Jesus says in the rest of verse 15, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. You've restored something precious. The unity of Christian brothers and sisters is precious in the sight of God and powerful witness in this world. Jesus says, by your love for one another, they will know that you are his disciples. So if there's a problem and problems come up, we, we speak poorly, we act foolishly, and we can hurt other people. When that happens, go and have a conversation. Don't let it fester. Well, they should come and see me. They're the one who did the wrong thing. No. Jesus says, you take the initiative. If someone sins against you, you go see them. If he listens to you, you've won a brother. Verse 16, second step, if he won't listen, if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, step three, tell the church, tell the church, There is a powerful culture of regeneration, a powerful culture of embrace that happens within the church. It is meant for our good. It is a grace from God. It makes us feel so a part of something that the world could never, ever replicate. And conversely... The rebuke of a friend should cut through. If it doesn't, the rebuke of a couple of friends coming to say, please, please see what you've done. And if that doesn't cut through, Jesus says, then the church, as a group of friends, as family, to gather around that person and say, please don't ignore your sin. We love you. We want to include you. You are part of our family, but your hurtful behaviour, your hurtful words will drive a wedge here. Please, please return. Find your forgiveness and your hope in Jesus. That's the voice of the church calling into each other's lives. And then step four, Jesus says, and this is where Paul is picking up his words, if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be a Gentile and a tax collector to you. And that is devastating when that happens. It is the last and drastic step in a long series of redemptive efforts to bring back the one who is wandering. So even as Paul explains his command to not associate with sexually immoral people back in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9... He goes on to try and make it clear what he means. He knows we we can't just cut ourselves off from sexually immoral people in general. There's a whole bunch of other 
list of sins that should concern us is far more extensive than those obvious ones. But he says, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother and sister and is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater. Do not even eat with such a person. I think the issue here that's assumed by this text is that this guy is an unrepentant sinner. I'm going to make the assumption that Paul understands this process of of renewal that occurs in discipline within the church. And if we finally got to a point where this guy is just saying, no, I want to live this way, I want to live that way, I will live this way, and no one can tell me otherwise. These are people who claim one thing, I am a child of God, but consistently live another, deliberately live another. And the context leads me to think that they are unrepentant in living this way. So here's where, though, I want us to see grace in the difficult places. This is a very difficult passage to preach from. It's a difficult passage to hear. And the reason why, both for me and for you, is that because we know that sin exists in our own life. And we think, all right, Chris, if we're going to be serious about following the Bible, and if we want to be a church that puts into practice the truths of the Bible, you know, we're all sort of nervously looking around a little bit, just going, well, who's, who's going to tap me on the shoulder? Who's going to go? You know, is it like watching Survivor? The tribe has spoken, you're out. Because we all battle two types of extremes in how we respond to this type of discipline. The discipline commanded of us, shown to us. One extreme, one extreme, is to embrace this type of discipline with a type of zealous excitement. All right, there are people, and there are churches, unfortunately, who are very quick on the kick them out part. Oh, you slipped up, did you? You're out. You're suspended. You're expelled. You're shunned. And there are subtle ways that we do that. That's one extreme. It, it seems they have a type of joy in pronouncing judgment. It excites them. The other extreme, though, is to gloss over this type of discipline. Just pretend it isn't there. Just skip 1 Corinthians 5. That Paul didn't really understand tolerance, or Paul didn't understand inclusion like we do. So we err on the side of let's, let's all just get along and be one big happy family, and we will just love them into right behaviour. But here's the problem with both of those extremes. They fail to acknowledge the grace that comes through discipline. That God gives discipline, correct, loving, spirit-controlled discipline to the church as a gift of grace. 
One group grasps at it like it is a weapon to punish the wrongdoer. But discipline is not about punishment. And the other group shuns discipline as a threat to their comfort. Because comfort is the greatest good for us to enjoy. But discipline, as the Bible presents it, is a gift of grace to us. It is used to correct, that's true, yes. But more importantly, it is a pathway to restoration. Discipline is always presented as a way of winning your brother. How do I win my brother? How do I, how do I get my sister back? How do we keep the family of God Secure and tight in its unity. Well, one of those graces is discipline. So don't mistake Paul's statement about handing someone over to Satan as meaning some type of stripping of the person's status in Christ, right? Give them to Satan. Now Satan can do whatever they want with them. You see it in verse 5? Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, so that, so that, don't miss that little phrase, so that his spirit may be what? Saved, right? There's a hard road that Paul knows this guy has to walk through, but he knows what the destination is. That the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The New Testament consistently presents the flesh and the spirit as being mortal enemies of each other in the Christian walk. Paul talks about it in the letter of Galatians. He says, you know, the very famous passage that we have, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. We, we sing songs about that. We don't sing songs about the verses that just come before it. <laughs> Our kids don't get up and go, the fruit of the flesh is, you know. But there's two lists in Galatians. There's two lists. The fruit of the spirit we can list those ones, we memorize it. The fruit of the flesh. You see, there's a way that we can feed both of those, the flesh or the spirit. We can live our life and we nurture it, we feed it, we coddle it, we encourage it. And we can do that with our flesh and we can do that with our spirit. And they're at war with one another, Paul says. They are constantly battling with each other. The taint of sin that exists even within Christians, that's what the Bible calls the flesh. And it leads us further out of step with God's desires for us. On the other hand, we can feed the Spirit, which produces fruit in us that are consistent with our status as sons and daughters of God. The fellowship of the congregation is not some magical barrier. When Paul says, hand that one over to Satan, it's not like those old movies. You know those old movies where, you know, some guy was running away from the bad guys and they're like, oh, they see a church. We're running there. And they run through the doors and now they go, oh, I'm safe. There's some magical barrier about being inside the church building. That's not what Paul's talking about. You know, it's not like you push someone out the door and you kick them through. And once they go through the door, they've gone through some magical spiritual barrier that's out there at the doorway. And now Satan's out there and he's like, oh, good, he's outside the building. I can do whatever I want. That's not what Paul's talking about. The fellowship of the congregation, the fellowship, 
the, the sense of belonging, the one another's of the New Testament, the way that we are meant to love one another, bear with one another, the way that we are meant to embrace one another, show hospitality to one another, all the one another's of the New Testament, the sense of what it means to belong to the church, not just attend a church. When someone is removed from the congregation, they no longer experience the benefits of being inside. And there are many benefits of being inside. And it is lonely out there. But Paul knows that the hurt that is experienced outside of the circle is a type of grace that is meant to help open the eyes of the unrepentant. Paul's concern is his spirit. Paul wants his restoration. Right? So instead of walking around like an inquisitor, looking for someone to drop the hammer on, what is something that we can actually do to build a community of loving accountability? Read just a couple of verses as we're about to close. Verse 6 and verse 8. Your boasting is not good, Paul says. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole bunch of dough? And he enters into just a few verses where there's all this talk about leaven and dough. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeast and dough. I just want you to know that I, last night, cooked the most amazing home-cooked loaf of bread. It was incredible. I, I'm boasting. It, but it was top range. Um, I have a bread maker, so all I had to do was just tip stuff in. <laughs> My wife found it on Gumtree, near new, works like, I was just testing it out, make sure it works all right. I had to put some yeast in, just um, one and a half teaspoons of yeast, 600 grams of baker's flour with salt and, I don't know, something else. I just followed the instructions. 380 mils of water, close the lid, turn it on. Three hours later, wow. Fresh, hot, crusty bread, butter, golden syrup, amazing. One and a half teaspoons of yeast is not much though, right? Especially among 600 grams of flour and the water and all the rest of it. But if I'd forgotten the yeast, what would have come out of that bread maker? All right, just a mess of doughy, Lumpy, sticks. the yeast makes all the difference and it, it spreads and its effect goes right through the whole dough. And that's Paul's point. Just a little bit of yeast and it, it works its way through the entire batch. And Paul wants to see the analogy. A little bit of sin. It has an infectious capacity to it. And we know that about our own life and we best not forget about our church life. A little bit of sin. Just a little bit of sin. We can tolerate that, can't we? Of course, Paul's referencing the, the Passover feast from back in Exodus when the, the Jews were rescued from Egypt and the great um, destroyer was sent in to kill off all the firstborn of Egypt and they had to put the blood on the the doorpost, remember? But the other thing they had to do was kill a Passover lamb. And they also, with the Passover lamb, had to make unleavened bread. 
yeast-free bread, flat bread. It was really important. Yeast has always had the symbolic nature in God's word about what needs to be removed to make something pure. One of the things that we can do for the good of our brothers and sisters is have a church of loving accountability where we create an environment of openness and acceptance but where we are willing to have the hard conversations with each other. Where I, I have the openness to sit with you and say, if you see something in my life that needs to be rooted out, that needs to be dealt with and brought back to the foot of the cross, then please, as a brother and sister in Christ, I desperately want you. It will be hard, I know, awkward conversations. I will find it difficult, as would you. But are we willing to have those sorts of conversations and say we want to deal with sin? We want to be a people who are coming back to the cross and saying we are here. There is a grace in that type of discipline. Man, I am praying, I'm hoping that we will never be at a point where we are in step four of the disciplinary process in Jesus' estimation. I don't ever want to be back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, not just preaching about it from the pulpit, but having a conversation with someone over a coffee about that. That we sure better be willing to have the conversations that lead up to it and say, can I win a brother? Can I win a sister? Can we rescue the steps that lead to destruction? And even if 1 Corinthians 5 has to come up in the life of our church, our prayer is not, good, let punish that guy for everything that he's done. No, it's let's prayerfully push him out in the hope that one day soon we'll be able to open our arms again and welcome him back. And that's what happens. That's how I want to finish, not on that. But in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians, I'm going to skip over some stuff that we don't have time for. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. I just want you to, to put your eyes on this as we finish and see that what was the future for this guy, right? Let's say that the church in Corinth Listen to Paul and they said, we are, we're boastful, this is wrong, this guy's wrong, they've reproached him and he's not repentant and they've, they've put into practice what Jesus said and they've, they've pushed him out of the circle. Here's what Paul says in, in the next letter that he sends to this church. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. Verse 7, as a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I think, I think Paul is maybe referencing this guy that has gone through a real journey of sin and discipline and the church has had to walk this hard road with him. But I would read from that, that there's been change, there's been restoration to some degree, and now Paul is saying to the church, hey guys, don't hold him now at arm's distance forever. 
His eyes are being opened to the grace of God again. Open your arms and reaffirm your love for him. Their love for him was there all along. Paul's love for him was there all along, but reaffirm it to him so he doesn't be overwhelmed, so he's not left battling this alone much longer. So my plea to all of us today is this. Firstly, if there's sin that you know that needs to be dealt with in your own life, then, then please come to the cross today. A sense of rebellion, whether you know Jesus, whether you've walked with him for years and yet you, you're saying, I, I, need, I know I need to deal with this. Then come now. The one who opens his arms to reaffirm his love is here. There's a shepherd willing to put you on his shoulder and carry you home. Through the grace of loving discipline, the man in 1 Corinthians 5 recognised, I think, his need for repentance, threw himself again on the mercy of God and found that his Saviour was more than enough for the task and he's more than enough for you. You will find that Jesus is ready to receive that sinner. He's ready to receive you. His scarred hands prove what lengths he has gone to to cover and redeem our sin. And he will embrace you and he will hold you and he will reaffirm his never failing love towards you and he will say, welcome home, my child. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline for the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard things to read. They're hard things to consider, hard things to apply. So, Lord, we acknowledge our need for you, all of us, in so many ways, whether by thought or by action, by intent, we fall short and we want to we wanna feed the spirit. We want to nurture the spirit in our life, not the flesh. And so, Lord, for all of us, pray, open our eyes to the severity of our own sin. Help us to be a repentant people, falling on your mercy, which will never fail us. To your grace that saves, to your grace that restores, that's your grace that helps us continue. Lord, we also want to be a church that stand with relationships of accountability with each other. So Lord, will you give us the humility to hear the loving words of a brother or sister who needs to have a hard conversation with us? and the humility to bow our knee in repentance when they do. Thank you for the grace of your discipline. Amen.